Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this night and we ask that you would take our time together, encourage us in your word, and Lord, help us to obey the directions you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, if you didn't get a copy of the notes and you need one, wave your hand there. I think Brother Stephen's got a few in the back. Uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. And uh, as we were going through the Gospels, of course, we spent quite a bit of time, as the Gospels do, on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to his crucifixion, resurrection. And um, when we got to John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, we really just had to skip over so much information. And uh, I know this first part may be a little bit of a rehash of some of the things that uh, have been covered, but uh, I just... uh, feel like we need to spend some time on this, and so the next several weeks uh, we're going to try to get the first discourse, the first section of teaching that Jesus did, and um, I'd like you to just flip the page back in your Bible, if you would, to John chapter 13, so we can set the context for this. Uh, One of the things that we need to do as we study our Bible is we need to keep it in the context. We need to understand what were the factors. What does the surrounding scripture say? What was actually going on? If you really want to understand something, you need to follow the action in the passage. Amen. Uh, you need to pay attention to these things, and I know that you do. Uh, and we spend a lot of time here, but I, I've heard this verse quoted so many times Let not your heart be troubled with no context. Uh, There are some times when your heart ought to be troubled. Uh, This was not one of them. And, but let's, let's just get the context. Jesus was finishing what we call the Last Supper. He had instituted uh, the Lord's Supper, the ordinance of that. He had pointed out the betrayer, Judas, Now, none of the disciples knew that yet, but once they remembered everything that was going on, and Jesus had told them that one of the 12 that sat at the table was going to betray him. Now, let me ask you, would that be a troubling thing to come up, that one of the inner 12 was going to turn Jesus over to the Pharisees and the chief priests, that he was going to be betrayed, that 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 would be troubling, I would think. That, that would be something that you ought to be upset. He had told them, look with me in chapter 13 and verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go ye cannot come. So now I say to you, Jesus said, I'm leaving you. Whither I go, where I'm going, you can't come now. There's going to be a separation. I'm no longer going to be walking with you. You're no longer going to be, when you get into trouble, uh, as they had so many times, you're not going to be able to come and wake me up because I'm not going to be in the back of the ship. Uh, you're not going to be able to come and get me when, when I come down off the mountain because I'm going to be gone. You are going to be on your own. How many of you would be troubled with that statement? I mean, you ought to be, amen. And then Peter said, well, where are you going, Lord? I'll go with you right now. Even if you die, I'm going with you. Now, who was the leader of the apostles? It was Peter, was it not? And he said, Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny that you've even known me three times. Now, would that not be inconceivable to you? I mean, would that not be just something like, uh, how, could this, how could this happen? I mean, this would be like Jesus saying, the Democrats are going to lower your taxes. That's unbelievable. It's not going to happen. And then it does. And you say, wow, I mean, you must be a prophet, right? 
I mean, the simple truth is, how in the world would anybody believe Peter? I mean, if Peter folds, where are the rest of the disciples at? And then Jesus makes the same statement. Look at it. We're going to read verse 38. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now that's the context of this passage. Jesus is now leaving the upper room. They are on their way to Gethsemane. And he starts the first discourse, let not your heart be troubled. Now there's an awful lot that was going to happen. Jesus knew what was going to happen. It wasn't amazing to Jesus that he was going to die on the cross. He had been planning this since before the foundation of the universe. And yet in the light, in the context of that statement, he's telling the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Now this goes to the second thing that I want us to do. As we look at this entire discourse, there are three basic commands Jesus gives. The first one is let not your heart be troubled. The second one is ye believe in God, believe also in me. There's two commands right there, right next to each other. And then the third command comes down at the very end here, not quite the end of our passage, but verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Now, commands are things that Jesus tells us to do. Now, oftentimes, my, my children, I'll say, Listen, I'd like this done. I'd like the room cleaned up. Sometimes I go, hey, Stephen, I'd like the van cleaned. He doesn't get the hint. So then I have to say, I, I want it done now. I've changed it from a request to a command. Now something better change. Something better happen. Start happening or otherwise we're, we're going to go to the next phase, which isn't very pleasant. Amen? Uh, the Lord is giving some commands here. He's not telling you, I don't want your heart to be troubled. He's not telling them, I don't want you to be upset about these things. He's saying, let not your heart be troubled. He's not saying, listen, you have believed in God in the past, and so I want you to think of me in the same light. No, he's saying, you have believed God, and just like you believe God, you believe me. And if you have any problems with this, I want you to open your eyes and see what has been done in my life and understand that the works that Jesus has done, Jesus is speaking, the works that I have done came from the Father and you need to put your faith and trust in me. Anyone who would make the kind of statements that people make about, uh, well, Jesus really wasn't saying that he was God. Uh, we have one of two options. One is your IQ is about the plant life behind me on the platform here. You just have no reasoning ability, no cognitive thinking skills. All, all you can do is just repeat some stupid thing somebody said to you. Or the other one is that you're trying to deceive. Those are the only two options that are there. Jesus was as clear as clear could be that you need to believe me. Now, as we were going through uh, the harmony of the Gospels, uh, I'm not going to promise to do this every time, but uh, we're going to do a theological overview here, okay? Um, 
The deity of Christ is all through this passage. Jesus is claiming equality with God. That is Christology. Jesus is claiming that if you're going to be saved, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. He's going to put that in this passage. That's salvation. That's called soteriology. The return of Christ is promised in this passage. That's eschatology. And then he deals with mankind and what God changes in man because you believe on Jesus. Now, when you think of anthropology, you think of cavemen. That's not true anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. And as we study what God does to man, this is part, we understand man not by examining man. We understand man by examining what God says about him. That's why this is theologically connected, not just uh, bone and, and, and uh, fossils and all that kind of stuff. We're not studying man to find out about man. We study God and what he said. And then we know about man, do we not? Amen? And so with, with that in, in light here, what we're going to do is just go through the passage as we do uh, on, uh, in many other instances here. And so we're going to start with the first command, let not your heart be troubled. My first statement is there certainly was much to be troubled about, was there not? And there was going to be a whole lot more. I mean, Peter was going to go out and weep bitterly because he had denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think that was a shock to Jesus that Peter did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do? Now, let's take this thing a step further. Did Jesus plan for Peter to deny him? No. You see, that's where the Calvinist gets off track with his theology. He believes in a God that is so sovereign that every action of mankind is determined by God and in essence, God becomes the author of sin. That God is not in the scriptures. But if you're going to logically reason everything out, who's more powerful than God? There's a verse in the Bible. Who has resisted his will? If God says no, are you going to say yes? But how many people have disobeyed God down through the ages, my friend? And this is what happened. Jesus was just telling Peter about Peter's own weakness. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Here's insight into how loving our God is. He knew what Peter was going to do and he just told Peter, let not your heart be troubled. That was, he was talking to Peter too. You know, that doesn't mean, you know, sometimes as I'm preaching, I just feel like the pendulum swings back and forth, you know. And this doesn't mean that Peter was to ignore and be careless about the wrong that he was going to do. It meant that he was going to come back to Jesus and seek his forgiveness and ask God to give him strength not to do it again. And by the way, we don't have any record of Peter ever denying the Lord again now, do we? You see, some people allow their sin or wrongdoing to stop them from serving Christ. This is what Jesus meant when he said, let not your heart be troubled. It, we've got to keep going forward. Yes, sometimes there'll be limits on what we can do for the Lord. But we need to keep moving forward. This is a command. Now, if you want to have an untroubled heart, Jesus gives us in the second command here how to solve the problem. He says, you believe in God. Now, most of us here tonight are familiar with what's in the Bible. Amen? When Jesus said, believe in God, what do you think was the first thing that came into 
the minds of the disciples as Jesus was talking to them. How about Moses in the Red Sea? How about God giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai? Don't you think those would have been the first things that would have happened? I mean, the temple had been destroyed 600 years before, and the temple that was there now was absolutely nothing in comparison because there was no Ark of the Covenant in this temple. When Jesus was telling them about God, they were believing in the God that had inhabited the Shekinah glory that was in the temple in Solomon's day. Guess what? Hadn't been there since. Not according to the biblical record. The Shekinah glory of God did not fill the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah. God was a little bit removed from them. In fact, there had not been a prophet from John the Baptist for the previous 400 years before. Now stop and think about 400 years. 2013, the year 1613. It would be another seven years before the pilgrims would land at Plymouth Rock. That's pretty far removed in time now, isn't it? And yet the disciples read the scriptures as they were growing up in the synagogues. They believed in God. They had not seen any of these miracles until Jesus came along. All of a sudden, now we see many of the same, in fact, multiplied more miracles in the ministry of Jesus Christ than in all of the prophets of the Old Testament combined. Amen? And so Jesus says, listen, let not your heart be troubled. Here's how you solve the problem of a troubled heart, my friend. He says, you believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have a problem with those words that really don't understand what that means? And we want to stop and make sure here. Do you know commentators who are trying to explain the Bible have a problem with these words and they try to explain what they mean? So that's why I don't recommend commentaries. <laughs> Because they struggle at the hard stuff. I mean, they struggle with the easy stuff and skip over all the hard stuff. The simple truth is Jesus was telling these disciples, just as you believe in God, the God of the Old Testament, the God that created, the God that brought Israel through the Red Sea and laid waste Egypt, the God that came down in Solomon's temple in the Shekinah glory, the God that was uh, worked all of the miracles and sent the fire down from heaven in the days of Elijah, the God that laid Jerusalem waste using the armies of Nebuchadnezzar to destroy everything in that city is equal. Jesus was claiming, you believe in God? You believe in me. Now, the Jewish mind, I mean, even to this day, you know, the, many of the religions, Christian religions, have adopted statues and icons and all of these different representations that people adore and things. And, and the Jewish faith is looking at that kind of Christianity and they said, what's the difference between that and the pagans that were before us in the land of Canaan? I'll tell you what, they're right, aren't they? Jesus was talking to men who hated idolatry. They had seen what the Romans had done as they came down through the land. Do you see how complex all of the nuances of this simple statement 
It, it reaches into every part of your relationship with God. The, the mankind, Christians have written books on this. And it's so simple. Jesus claimed to be God. The Jews could not comprehend God's. You know, that's one of the things Islam gets hung up on. How can you have God having a son? Well, that's how God chose to reveal himself to us. And just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that God is wrong. Amen? Uh, Maybe it is you who has the little mind. Hello? I think it's sometimes we need to go on the offensive with some of these things when people question this way. Says, what's wrong with you? Why, why can't you just believe what the Bible says? Because my God's a little bigger than your brain. And I'm not trying to insult God. Amen? But the human mind is a very insignificant thing when you compare it to God. Amen? And Jesus here says, you believe in God? Believe also in me. By the way, is there any problem you or I will ever face that that will not solve? Do you see why Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled? There is nothing that you will face in this life that believing in Jesus will not solve. He was giving them the absolute simplest, best advice that he could give them as God in these last few moments that he would have with them. He was, uh, we make into a huge theological issue of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all back and forth and all of this. But Jesus said, listen, if you want an untroubled heart, you've got to believe in me more than you do the circumstance. You've got to believe in Jesus more. I mean, the disciples saw him bound and beaten by the Roman soldiers. That'd be kind of hard to believe in God right then, wouldn't it? They saw him die, many of them. The ones that were hiding in fear heard under absolute verifiable testimony that Jesus had died. And yet Jesus said, believe in me. And so then he goes on and he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Just a simple promise. Jesus saying, listen, you believe in God. I want you to believe in me the same way you believe in God. I want you to understand that in my father's house are many mansions. Now, I've done this a little tongue-in-cheek here on occasion, but if you've got one of them newfangled Bibles, it says, in my father's house are many rooms. Uh, Now, when we think of a mansion, we think of a great big house now, don't we? And the word mansion simply means a dwelling place. It has come in modern usage to refer to a large and rich dwelling place. But you see, God doesn't have enough money to have a large and rich dwelling place for everyone. Now, I mean, come on. Where do people get off with this stuff? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. There's enough room to live for everyone. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
I'm going to make a place for you to live. And he said, if I'm making a place for you to live, that means I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. You see, the first reason why we need an untroubled heart is because Jesus is God. We need to put our faith in him. The second reason we can have an untroubled heart is because this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'll tell you, you, you've got to understand something. God's given us many illustrations. Uh, I can't remember who I was talking with just the other day, something about uh, a child being born. I said, you know, if, if man had to go through what a woman goes through to bring a baby into this world, he said, uh, we'd all be in straitjackets. Uh, the simple truth is, a woman has to go through a tremendous amount. And we're not just talking about pain. We're talking about all the other things that happen, has to happen for a baby to be born. You know how you get through that? You have to understand that it's only temporary. It's not going to last forever. You know what? You need to understand this life is only temporary. It's not going to last forever. That person who hates you is only going to be able to hate you so long. They're not going to be around forever. They're not going to hate you in heaven should they be fortunate enough to get there. Because God's not going to allow that go on up there. Amen? I remember a young man came to me and said, I just can't stand what my father is doing to me. I said... Will you please grow up for a minute? And he looked at me. I said, how long are you going to have to put up with your father? I said, is he going to live another hundred years? I said, you don't have that long. And pretty soon you're going to move out of the house. And I know your father, he's not going to follow you down the street as you move out into your own home and tell you everything to do. Why don't you just pull in your horns and listen to your father for the next few years and put up with him and you'll be a whole lot better off when you get out of your house. You know, we get troubled about so many things because we think it's going to go on forever. Jesus has given the apostles a promise. He said, it's not going to go on forever. He said, I'm preparing a place. I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you. It says those mansions are already there, so don't worry about the mansions. He's doing something else. Isn't that what it says? And he's preparing and he's going to come back. By the way, I've been reading a history, supposedly a, a history of St. Patrick of Ireland. And uh, it's amazing the things that are in there. And I finally waded through all of the garbly gook to get to the good part. And you know that Isaac, I mean, Patrick, I'm sorry, in his testimony, in his statement of doctrine, said that he believed that Jesus would return. Oh, that's pretty interesting now, isn't it? wonder where he got that from. The Catholic Church has not taught the return of Jesus except to come back and set up his kingdom in Rome. Uh, he didn't get that from the Pope, my friend. He got that from the Scriptures. He got it from John chapter 14. Because Jesus said, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. How many of you are looking forward to Jesus coming back? That'll help you when things get discouraging. Amen? It's supposed to. That's one of the places where we are to go. And so as Jesus is working through what took him, what, 30 seconds to say? I've been at it for half an hour now at least. 
40 minutes. I got 15 more to go, so we're going to try to finish this passage. But do you see how much Jesus said in just a few words? And then he says, you need to have an untroubled heart because you don't have to worry about how you're going to get there. Now, what did he just told them? He said, I'm going and I'm going to come back and get you. And then he says, and whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And and I've seen so many people stumble at that verse. Now, where did Jesus say he was going? To the Father's house. What was he going to do? He's going to prepare a place for us. When is he coming? How are we going to get there? He said, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He's restating what he said. He said, the way, he says, where I'm going, whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know, you know where I'm going, I just told you, and you know how you're going to get there because I just told you how you're going to get there. Thomas missed it. Uh, By the way, how many of us have missed it? How many of you have read through that passage and say, wow, yeah, man, you know, Thomas got it right. How in the world were they supposed to know where Jesus was going? He just told them. Don't you love how simple the Bible is? And so Jesus says, I mean, Thomas, verse 5, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? How many of you have gotten in trouble for not listening at one time or another in your life? You know why we have a troubled heart? Because we're not listening. How many times, and and I'm sorry to say how many times, how many times, but uh, I think I need to remind you how many times. Because it happens all the time. Over and over again in our lives, do we make mistakes? Do we mess up? Do we fall into sin? We fall prey to the tempter's snares. We do things that we know we ought not do. And every time, hello, we weren't listening, were we? We knew. We know the answer. We just weren't paying attention. That's why it's here the way it is. Thomas misses it completely. And so Jesus then makes what I put in here a super statement. I mean, this is just one of those verses in the Bible that the scholars and the critics and the people who really know what they think they know They want to take this verse out of your Bible. Jesus said, I am. By the way, if you look that up in the Hebrew, I am is Jehovah. He said, I am the way. The inference in the language here is, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, when you use that particular article there, T-H-E, you're talking exclusively, you're talking uniquely, you're saying that there is none other. He said, I am the way. Thomas says, how do we know where you're going? We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, listen, I am the way. I'm going and I'm going to come back and get you and take you there. So you know the way. He said, I am the truth. There is no other truth outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Everybody and their brothers trying to make another way. And he says, I am the life. John chapter 1, that light is the life of men. You want to see? You want to enjoy life? You're going to find it in Jesus Christ. You're not going to find it anywhere or in anything else. 
Just if, if you have any questions, just pick up a newspaper. How miserable is this world in which we live? How miserable are the people who are trying to live without the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet, we can look in our Bible and find stories of people who were put in prison, who were beaten unfairly, who were treated in every way under the sun. And if the Bible isn't enough, we can spend the rest of your life reading the histories of people who have relived exactly the same stories that are in the Bible. You see, believing in Jesus was enough. Understanding that the little bit of suffering that we go through in this life is not to be compared to what's going to happen in heaven is enough to keep the heart from being untroubled. To understand that it's all about Jesus and none about me. And then Jesus says in verse 7, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. From henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Now doesn't that sound a little confusing? Did disciples know who Jesus was? Not really. They did, but they didn't. Jesus was trying to say, if you really understood what was going on around you, you know you would know that you have seen the Father. And again, it's Philip's turn this time. He misses it. You know what that shows us? That all the disciples missed it. You know what that tells us? That if you and I aren't very, very careful, even though we know these things, we're going to miss it. And we need to remind ourselves. We need to go back. And, and Jesus says, from henceforth, from this point forward, I'm going to dispel what you don't know. I'm going to give you the truth. Ye know him and have seen him. From this point, I'm going to dispel your lack of true understanding your, the fact that you really don't understand what's going on, from this point you need to accept the simple fact that you know God the Father and you have seen Him. And Philip says, we're going to get to see the Father? Show us the Father and, and we'll be satisfied. You know what Philip was thinking of? He was thinking of that passage where the 70 elders went up on Mount Sinai and saw God sitting on His throne. He said, we're going to see something nobody else has seen. And Jesus disappoints them purposefully because he wants them to understand something. And he wants you and I to understand that same thing. Have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So we go right back to that same command. Believe me. Jesus is telling the disciples... You must believe that when you see me, you have seen the Father. We've often used this illustration because I believe it's a biblical one. We are created in the image of God. Amen? Well, how are we created in the image of God? Is God tall and thin? Is he short and wide? Is he Caucasian? Is he fill in the blank? How are we created in the image of God? Very simple. We got a body. That's the part we all get caught up in. But that's not the real you. It's the soul that lives in you. Amen. 
But if you read your Bible, when Adam had Seth, Seth was born in Adam's image, not in God's image. Something happened. Could not there have been a third part of man? Just like God said, let us make man in our image. And God has revealed himself to us in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If man was truly created in his image, body, Jesus, soul, Father, and before sin, a spirit that could relate directly to God. All of these things are touched on right here in these sentences. Jesus said, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. You know, the church argued that, quote unquote, the church, the historical church. You see, Jesus' church never argued that point. Because to make a difference between God the Father and God the Son in any material way is to be unsaved. We still together? But it was not until the Council of Chalcedon, as the scales tipped back and forth in, in following centuries, I think the Council of Chalcedon was 451 A.D., 140 years after uh, Emperor Constantine come along, did they finally get straightened out that Jesus is the very God of gods. That there is no di difference materially, corporately, or in any way between Jesus the Son and God the Father. Now, that's true. But if they were arguing about it until 451 A.D., something's wrong somewhere, my friend. Something's wrong with history. That cannot be Jesus' church. Because Jesus told the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you need to understand from henceforth you've seen the Father and you had better be satisfied or you are in grave danger. Not of losing your salvation. Of never, gotten, of never having gotten there in the first place. Amen? And then Jesus makes a statement. The next biggest statement that people argue about is if you believe in Jesus, should something happen in your life? You see, there are a lot of people that say, well, you just believe in Jesus and everything will be fine. We're all God's children. That's not what Jesus said. He said, if you can't believe in me because you can't understand it, he said, look at what I've done and believe me because of what God has done through my life. Verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. If you're truly saved, if you truly believe on Jesus, then your life is going to change. You're going to start doing things that Jesus would do. Uh, no, not what would Jesus do, okay? Let's not go there. Uh, but Jesus said, you're going to start doing the works that I do. What were some of the works that Jesus did? Does that mean that Benny Hinn move over? Here we come. No. Jesus established a church. Was that not the single greatest gift that Jesus gave to the world was the establishment of the first church? And did not that church do some incredible things as it reached its own generation? I mean, 12 men started out, 11, I'm sorry, 11 men started out, and they reached their generation with the gospel. No generation since then has done as good a job or a thorough a job as the first generation did. But Jesus said, greater works than these shall he do. 
Well, you know what? How many churches did Jesus start? Just one? We're getting ready to start our second church here. Amen? And I'm not trying to downplay, but this is what Jesus meant. He didn't mean just miracles and things. He meant seeing people saved. If you talk about the church that Jesus had on the day of Pentecost, they had 120 people assembled in that upper room. That's not much bigger than our church is right now. Does that mean Jesus was a failure? No, that church did more to reach its generation than any other church in history. But the simple truth of the matter is, Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to start churches. That was the work that Jesus did. You're going to see Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus wants to see souls saved. Amen? And only the Lord knows how many souls have been saved just in the last 20 years through this church. We have no idea. Praise the Lord for everyone we know about. Amen? But when we get discouraged, we need to remember about all the ones we don't know about. Amen? Because Jesus promised that we would do the works that he did. And he said that if we'll ask anything in his name, he'll do it. We ask the Father in his name. Does that mean, dear Lord, I need a new car? Poof, there it is, sitting in your driveway. No. It says, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I believe that we ought to ask for things in Jesus' name, but it doesn't mean, dear Lord, please help us get this done in Jesus' name. Amen. That's not asking in Jesus' name. The uh, illustration that I've used many times, and just use it again quickly for sake of time, if you have a check that allows you to go to the bank and ask funds in the name of the person who has signed the check. It's just that simple. You don't get to put what you want on the check. That belongs to the person who writes it. Amen? And we can ask things in Jesus' name as long as he's written out the check and signed it. And by the way, there's an awful lot of promises in this book. Finding God's will for your life is not a mystical thing. It's finding what's been written on the check. You know what? God wants you to win souls. He wants every member of this church to do that. I wish it was by the hundreds that we had to have two or three services and had to worry about all this stuff. But you know what? If we look around, we're barely taking care of what we got. If we want the Lord to bless us some more, we need to get into a position where he can bless us some more. But I will tell you this. I've seen an awful lot of preachers when they get four, five, six hundred people in church start sitting back and saying, boy, look at great Babylon, which I have builded. Tell you what, God doesn't want that. It's that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I believe that's one of the reasons why the Lord wants us to start other churches so that nobody but God can take the credit for it. Amen? Now, let me just ask you, what part of your Christian life haven't we dealt with tonight? You talk about a thoroughly, a thorough summation of the Christian walk with God. I mean, it's right here. I mean, there are books in my library that are written on subjects that we have covered completely and simply tonight. 
And you read those books, and guess what? You wouldn't understand any better than you would if you just read John chapter 14, 1 through 14. Jesus gave this discourse simple and complete for a reason. Hey, the answer is, okay, the command, let not your heart be troubled. There we go. What's the answer? You believe in God? Believe also in me. He says, it's only temporary. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming again. Where I'm going, you know. To the Father's house to prepare a place for us. How to get there, you know. I'm coming back to get you. Amen. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. By the way, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't be confused anymore. Don't be partial in your understanding. And once you believe in me, you're going to do the works that I do. You're going to pray for the right things, and I'm going to give it to you because the Father is to be glorified in the Son And the Son has chosen those who believe in his name to bring glory to Jesus and ultimately to the Father. All God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. And Lord, I would pray if someone's facing discouragement as they walked in this night that they would simply obey you and refuse to let their heart be troubled. Lord, for each one as we struggle through life that we would remember the answer is believe in me. Believe me. Believe Jesus. And Lord, if those works aren't coming, that we would get back to what it means to just simply believe in Jesus. That he is the very God of gods. That there is no situation that we face that is not already under his jurisdiction. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pray in a way that would bring glory to the Father through Jesus Christ. Then we'll have answered prayers, Lord. I ask you to help us as we go through these chapters. That you would challenge us to change the way we walk because of believing in you. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that time tonight, we'll give you an opportunity.